Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Anyways, glad y'all are here. Um, Like Evan said, uh, Stanford is the best place in the world to answer the how questions of life. Um, but life is not worth living if we're not asking the why questions. Why are we doing what we're doing? And what we do every week is we open the Bible and we think that uh, everybody is in process answering those questions, and we think the answers are here, and, and we are fumbling through those answers together. So regardless of where you are, uh, spiritually speaking, uh, whether or not you identify as a Christian or not, or you're skeptical, um, we're glad you're here, and you're welcome in RUF. And one thing, Ken will talk about this later, I would especially encourage is next weekend, we'll be going away for the weekend, very close by, um, up just north of Sacramento, for a fall getaway. And it is uh, a great time to get to know a bunch of people in RUF. Um, please, it's $50. If that if you can't afford it but would like to go, let me know. We, can have, we have scholarships available. But um, I promise you this is a great decision, especially early on in your year. Um, and we'll have a great time together. Anyways, let me pray for us, and then we'll talk about the story. Father, we thank you for this story. It's uh, one that in some ways is really different from all the other ones and from what we expect to hear from Jesus. But I pray now as we think about what it meant that he went to a wedding and he made more wine, uh, that you would show us that in this story we see your heart, uh, we see your love, and we actually see that your intention for us um, is to celebrate. And I pray that we would have the courage to do so because actual real celebration takes courage. So Holy Spirit, please touch our hearts and be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so about once a week, Elizabeth and I, my wife, uh, who's home with the girls tonight, have this same conversation. And uh, when she does the grocery shopping... She usually asks me at some point while she's making a list, do you want me to get a snack for you? And I say, yes, please, because every night at 9.30, that is the most hungry moment of the day for me. Not in the morning when I wake up or not lunchtime or dinner, but it's like 9.30 because we have little kids and we we eat dinner too early. And so at 9.30, I need my fourth meal, but I don't want it to be a full meal because I don't want to go to bed on a full stomach. And so this 9.30 ravenous hunger thing is a real issue for me. It's kind of something, it's the cross I have to bear. But she fought, so she asked, what do you want me, she asked, do you want me to get you a snack? Yes. And then she asked me the hardest question in the world that now paralyzes me. And it is, what do you want me to get? And the reason it paralyzes me is now for over a decade, I've been trying to answer that question. And for a year or two, we went down the ice cream road, because that seems logical. That's what you do at the end of the night. That's kind of your nightcap. Um, But I love sleep, and I've passed this... (laughs) It's a different kind of nightcap. Sometimes it's wine, too. Um, We've paired it with a beverage before, but... um, But this is what happens with both margaritas and ice cream at 9.30 at night. Is uh, sugar, my blood sugar spikes, and then I can't sleep. I don't know if this is y'all, it's going to happen to you when you get older, but a lot of sugar late at night wrecks your sleep. So, like, that just knocked sugar off. So, 
I got, couldn't do ice cream anymore. That knocked off brownies and cookies, any kind of sweet. Uh, and then we kind of traveled down the bread slash carb trail for a while, like crackers and things like that and goldfish and um, the peanut butter filled pretzels from Trader Joe's. Um, which if I were playing church one day, that's going to be like our communion bread because that's what we're going to eat in the New Earth. But I'm uh, trying to do the paleo-ish thing because I kind of do the CrossFit-ish thing. So I don't want to pound a bunch of carbs at 9.30 at night. So that knocked off all the bread options. Um, I love whole milk, but I can never drink a little bit of it. So when it was whole milk for a while, I would go to bed on this stomach full of amazing, wonderful, organic whole milk. But you don't want to go to bed on a stomach full of amazing organic whole milk. Um, I tried beef jerky because I thought that's no carbs, that's all protein, but there's no such thing as enough beef jerky because it doesn't fill. Like, there's not enough mass there. But this has been a dilemma now for the last two or three years, and I've just given up. She keeps asking me, what do you want? Uh, And I finally realized the answer is, I don't know. And uh, I think this is kind of us in life. We know we want something, and we're trying a lot of things, but sometimes we get to a point where we realize, I don't know what it is I want anymore, and that in some ways, a lot of life is a 9.30 hunger crisis, right? Which is, I am starving, and I don't know what I want anymore. And I think that's how we go through life, and and, you know, we've all experienced this, um, for while you knew what you wanted was to get into Stanford, and you got here, and that was great, and it's good. But you realize, like, that, okay, that wasn't it. It didn't save me. Like, it didn't fix everything. Um, you've had, lots of us have this uh, problem. Like, you, you broke up with somebody, and you want that conversation of closure, right? I just want closure. And then you have that conversation eight times before you realize it doesn't really work, you know? But we just kind of have these things we keep thinking we want and that are going to make everything right, And in some ways, the biggest kind of existential crisis in life is when you've kind of had everything and realize none of it is what you wanted. Um, I've quoted Louis C.K. before, the comedian, who has this whole bit about how everything is awesome and no one is happy. We have more than anybody has had ever. Yes, everyone in this room, regardless of where you view yourself on the United States socioeconomic spectrum, you are part of a class of people that has more of what they want than anybody has had ever, and yet we're the most depressed country on the globe. I think it's because we're trying everything and we still don't know what we want because everything hasn't worked. And C.S. Lewis said this, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And I think he's actually beginning to open part of us um, and part of our hearts so that we can understand what Jesus is saying in John 2. Because of what I want you to see, this is Jesus' first miracle. And actually, you'll notice John doesn't call it a miracle. He calls it a sign. And that's really, really important to notice that he calls it a sign because what signs do is they point, point to something bigger beyond themselves. You're never supposed to stop at a sign. You're supposed to go beyond it to where it points you. And it's an odd first miracle because when you think about miracles, you think about raising the dead, making the lame walk, uh, restoring sight to the blind, those kind of things. But verse 11 calls this Jesus' first sign. And the word, the Greek word for first there is arche, which doesn't just mean first in order, but also primary. So why is this the primary sign of Jesus? 
If John is writing this book for the purpose that he tells us in John 20, that it is so that we would believe in Jesus and have life, why this story? Why is this the thesis statement? Why is this the primary sign? And the passage ends, right? With the disciples, they see the glory of God in this sign, and they do what John intended in this book. They believed in Jesus. Why is it that the big first primary sign that Jesus performs and Why is it that this sign engenders belief in His followers? And the sign is this, that not only does He keep a dying party going, but He makes it better. I think He's giving us a glimpse into what we want at 9.30 at night. And that if we actually begin, this is hard work, and I'm just, don't, don't get caught on this right now. If we be, actually begin to examine every single choice you make, every one, Not some of them, not just the big ones, all of them. And we begin to ask why. And if we begin to chase every longing we have, and we begin to follow it down, why do I long for that? What was I hoping for? What was I hoping for? What was I hoping for? That what's driving every choice and what's driving every desire and longing and keeps not getting met that we're trying goldfish and we're trying ice cream and we're trying margaritas and peanut filled pretzels and we've tried money and we've tried romance and we've tried therapy and we've tried drugs and we've tried fun and none of those quite fit and if you're tired of not knowing what you want at 9.30 at night Jesus is saying you're right to long for something and I've come to show you what it is and how to get it and the image at the center of this story is a cup of wine And I think that is the answer to both of those questions. What is it that he comes to offer and how do we get it? First of all, what is it? Who remembers the opening scene of Breaking Bad? Wow. Really? Okay, man. We're going to have some cultural... Next week, we're going to start watching... We're going to watch an episode of Breaking Bad and then we're going to have worship and teaching, all right? Because I care for your souls and your souls need Breaking Bad. Alright, the opening scene is Walter White's khaki pants flying through the air in the, des in the desert. Does that sound familiar to anybody? This is a common storytelling tool. You've seen this in a lot of great television uh, and a lot of great movies where what they're doing is they're showing you the final scene at the beginning. Right, it's a teaser. It's a cold open. And so what happens is after you see the, his khaki pants flying through the desert, it moves back in time and the episode then tells you the entire story that leads up to that scene. That's what Jesus is doing right here. If you'd seen Breaking Bad, you would understand how to read the Gospel of John better. So, see, <laughs> this is for your souls. But that's what Jesus is doing right here. His public ministry starts at a party. And we're supposed to ask, why does his public ministry start at a party? And why is the first act of his public ministry making a party better? Wedding celebrations, you may know this, were days long. Uh, at that time, it was, a, it was a very important social event. It was a social faux pas for your party to go sour or to go wrong. There actually, we have recorded, not in scripture, but in archaeology and in ancient documents, where people were sued because their wedding party ended early. It was, a, it was, they knew how to party. Like, we think we know how to party. No, 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 they actually sued people for bad parties, right? And Jesus' first miracle is that he saves and improves a party by providing, notice the detail in text, better wine for celebrating. Jesus is giving us a glimpse of the end. 
He's showing us a glimpse of the final scene right at the beginning. And the rest of his life is seeing how we get there. Because all throughout the prophets, and Jeremiah and Hosea, here's from Amos 9.14, I will restore the fortunes of my people. And this is how Jesus describes, this is how the prophets describe the end and what the joy of being with God will be like. I will restore the fortunes of my people and they will rebuild ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. And in Jesus' teaching ministry in Matthew 2 and 25, He says the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast. The image given in Revelation 19 of what it will be like to be with Jesus in the new heavens and new earth. Jesus, you'll, Jesus actually called the Lamb of God earlier in John. And in Revelation 19, this is what uh, John says in his vision. Hallelujah, the Lord, the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. The relationship between God and His people is often described as a marriage in the new heavens and new earth and coming into God's loving presence is depicted as a party. It is depicted to have flowing wine, to be lavish. Jesus is giving us a glimpse of the end. We were made to party. And we spend our whole life trying to figure out what to party for. And we spend our whole life basically mimicking a party. Mimicking a party. And our parties are a mimicry of true joy and celebration. And we know that our parties are a mimicry of true joy and celebration because there are two glaring universal experiences we all continue to have at our parties. A true party is intended to fill us up. The marriage supper of the Lamb... You will feel more you than you've ever felt before. It will restore your humanity. It will heal you. It will fill you. You will be healthier and richer and fuller as a person all the way through when you attend a true party. Our parties empty us, don't they? They dehumanize us. We actually spend a lot of our time at the party trying to become not ourselves because we can't stand ourselves. We don't use wine to celebrate. We use wine to run away. Because this me doesn't know how to be comfortable in this world. These party, they mimic life while in fact taking it from us. When we wake up hours later or weeks later or months later or even years later and realizing we became less ourselves because we were using party to run from life because we didn't know what to do. We knew we wanted to party, but we didn't know how or what for. But the other thing we actually do with our parties because we know we're supposed to party, is we have to come up with fictional themes for our parties. Right? Because we know that a party is supposed to be about something. A party is about celebrating something. There has to be something at the center of it. But since we have nothing true and deep to celebrate, we manufacture a theme and say our party is about this fictional theme. So we want a party, and we try to, But our parties are about escaping the human condition and creating fictional causes for joy. And we all know it. And what Jesus is telling you here is He's the true master of the true party. That He's actually... His party is cause for celebration because what He's come to do is put sin and suffering death away. And that's cause for celebration. And that's why 
It's called a feast in Revelation to be with God. So why are we not good at partying and how can we get better? And the first thing we have to understand is that the celebratory nature of a party scales up according to the significance of what's being celebrated. A party scales up to the significance of what's being celebrated. This is what I mean by that. If you beat Central Florida, it's like, yay! If you beat USC, you're like, yes! Right? (laughs) You get an A on the midterm, you're like, I'm going to buy myself some fills. If you graduate first in your class, your parents are like, I'm buying you an Audi. Right? (laughs) The celebration scales up. Does this make sense? According to the significance of what's being celebrated. We don't celebrate well because our imaginations are actually too dull to hear and imagine what Jesus has actually come to do. We are trying to solve the human condition, trying to satisfy the hunger and that longing, and our solutions are very small-minded. And I think God would look at Stanford and Silicon Valley and He would not say what the rest of the world says, which is, this place is just too grandiose. He would actually look at this place and He would say, this place is so small-minded. Because we're talking about mobile apps that make getting a car service easier and more streamlined and safer. And he's talking about ending suffering and tears and death. We are warring against the inevitable frustration of the human condition. And the ways we deal with it are so small-minded. So we're dealing with guilt, right? We're all dealing with shame and guilt. So what have we come up with to deal with that? We come up with ethical relativism. You can call it whatever you want. And so what that is, is we rewrite ethical principles. There's no guiding ethical principle how to live, right? And so we can't handle guilt. So you rewrite ethical principles to conform to our personality so we don't have to feel guilt anymore, right? This is do what's best for you. Do what feels right in your own eyes. Those kinds of things. We don't know what to do with guilt and shame, so we say, you're not really guilty of anything because you need to do what's right for you. So everybody has their own desires and their own sense of what's right and wrong, and they should do what's right in their own eyes. And of course, if we all rewrite what's proper ethical behavior and use our own, my Britain subjective sense of what's right and wrong, and you use your own sense of what's right and wrong, and the other person uses their own sense of right and wrong, what happens? That is the chief cause of warfare, strife, and relational breakdown in the world. Because ISIS is doing what they feel is morally right. And so did Hitler. And every marriage, and every family, and every romance, and every friendship, and every partnership that has broken ever was broken because each person did or said what they felt was right for them. But we're so afraid of feeling guilt, and we're so afraid of saying, I am wrong, and maybe I'm even the wrong sort of person. That instead of dealing with that reality, we come up with this asinine and actually socially destructive idea for eliminating our sense of guilt, which is, there is no guilt. Do what's right for you. What Jesus comes to do is take away guilt by becoming our sacrifice and bearing the guilt and shame for us at the cross. How about instead of trying to justify ourselves or deny that guilt exists, we let Jesus forgive us? Right? We're guilty, we don't know how to deal with it. We're lonely and we don't know how to deal with it. So we either become someone who we think everyone else will like because we don't think anybody could be friends with or really want to be around the uninteresting version of us that we don't like. Or we ghettoize and hide and, and go gather with tribes of people just like us. 
Or we look at porn and we masturbate and we hook up and play out a fantasy of real connection and it always leaves us more lonely and less human on the other side. Jesus comes to us in our uninteresting and broken condition. And, and, and Christians keep thinking, Jesus is going to love and connect with me when I finally become the better version of me I keep hoping I can become this quarter, this year, next year. Jesus loves you, the one that's here today that's messy and uninteresting. Not asking you to be someone else in order to earn His love. Jesus loves this version of you and He longs to be with you now the way you are. We're insecure. So in Genesis, just like the people in Genesis 9, we build towers of accomplishment. Right? Because if I convince myself and others that I'm someone, that I've done great things, that I'm part of a great thing, I can say, look at what I did and look at how exceptional I am. And if that's actually how we're going to rid ourselves of insecurity, then how come anybody at Stanford is insecure? Wouldn't it make sense that if anybody in this world would be radically secure, it would be the most intelligent, high-achieving people in the world? But the fact that insecurity is rampant in all of our lives on this campus is testament to the fact that no matter how much you achieve and how great you become in power and influence and money, you can gather around yourself. That's not how you create security. Because the key to security is not doing great things. The key to security is being loved. And Jesus offers the security of unconditional love, not conditioned on your great or moral things. We're physically broken. So we ship off elderly people and we eat paleo and we work out, work out and we do Botox into thinking and convince ourselves into thinking that we're going to be young and strong forever because we just would rather deny the inevitability of death because that's the one thing Everyone, regardless of creed or confession, knows we're powerless against. And Jesus offers resurrection. Those who are in Him by faith are a new creation. Everything will be made new again. The great historical claim that everyone has to deal with, Christian or not, is whether or not it's true that in the first century, a Jewish teacher died and rose again. Because if he conquered death, that's the first and foremost thing you have to deal with for the rest of your life, if that's really true. But in going through all those things, this is my point. My point is the reason we don't celebrate well is because we failed to grasp actually how wide and how deep and how high the love of Jesus and the promises of God are. We are insecure and we're lonely and we're guilty and we're dying. And the best we've come up with is to treat the symptoms of the disease. And our parties are actually weak because at best we have some mildly effective ability to treat the symptoms of the human condition. And we only celebrate a little bit because if you're dying from cancer and the best you can do is apply some cream to a skin irritation, then you're only going to celebrate a little bit. And you're trying to distract yourself from the fact that we have no real true deep and call, a deep hope to celebrate about. But if the tumor is removed, it's killing us then you'll party. The reason we party so poorly is because we know we're supposed to, but we actually haven't found anything truly, deeply, fillingly, and hopefully to party about. Because we actually haven't sat down and contemplated what Jesus has come to do. God made you for a great party, greater than any party you were encountering in college or beyond. How do we get in on it? And there's an important detail. You probably 
noticed this and wondered about when you read the text. Jesus' mother is the first person to be concerned about the wine situation. And she tells him they have no wine, and his response is bizarre. And he says, woman, which is not as offensive as it sounds. The word was more like saying ma'am, but it was still kind of a distant term. Uh, It was not endearing. He says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And that's a weird response when his mom tells him about the situation. And what's going on is this. If you've ever been somewhere and your mind is on something else, your mind is somewhere else, if you actually ever get lunch or coffee with me on Tuesday, you'll, everybody who does it, you'll notice at some point we'll end up talking about large group because while I'm trying to be present with you, I'm thinking about this. My mind is elsewhere. This stressful thing that's kind of ahead of me. Jesus' mind is elsewhere. His mind is on another encounter with, that he is going to have with another cup in the near future. And when he says, my hour has not yet come, when you read the Gospels, every time he says, my hour or the hour, he's alluding to his, rest, his arrest and his crucifixion, his own death. Soon in John, in chapter 7, they're going to want to arrest him. And he says, but his hour has not yet come. In 8.20, they're going to want to arrest him again. And it says, his hour has not come. And in John 12, he enters into Jerusalem for the last time on the eve of his arrest and crucifixion. And he starts talking about how his hour has finally come. And he prays in Mark 14, right before his arrest, literally moments beforehand. And he says, let this hour pass. And actually in that same prayer, he says, God... Will you please let this cup pass? Jesus is thinking about this cup. It's a cup that's spoken about all through Scripture, and it's on His mind. And the prospect of drinking that cup overwhelms Him. Why is Jesus distressed about another cup? The cup that's going to come at His hour. All throughout the Old Testament... This is one example, Psalm 75a. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. All throughout Scripture, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Revelation speak of a cup of God's wrath. Now what is this cup? How are we to think about this? And what I, to understand the, the importance and the significance and the necessity of the cup of God's wrath, what I want you to think about is I want you to think about a friend of yours that's been hurt recently. Think about it. And remember the first time you heard about it, or maybe you've been hurt recently by someone. Right? Just two weeks ago, a good friend of mine was threatened and made to feel unsafe. And when the first time I heard that story, I got angry. Right? When you start thinking about that story when your friend's hurt, you start to get angry. Right? You know why you start to get angry? Because you love them. Right? Now, take that, remember it, and then think about all the cool things going on at Stanford to fight injustice. One of the cool things about being here. Right? There's International Justice Mission, there's Black Lives Matter, there's the Dance Marathon, there's Students for Education Reform. All these things going on where Stanford students are using the resources to make things right in the world that are wrong. You put all that stuff together, you put the ways you've been hurt and your friends get hurt, and you put all of that together and all those feelings together, you know what you have? You have a little cup of wrath right there. You're like, the world's not supposed to be this way. The cup of God's wrath are all of God's feelings toward everything that has brought pain and suffering and death into the world for every individual. 
not just in our little slice of reality, right? We just see a tiny little slice of the injustice and the brokenness of the world. And not just today either. We just kind of see things across our very limited time spectrum. But what if you felt the weight of everything that is wrong that has happened? The cup of wrath is God's feelings toward that. And the cup that comes at Jesus' hour that He's talking about here represents all of God's feelings toward every speck of injustice and pain and brokenness in this world. He cares about every single ounce of it. And when we broach the issue of God's wrath, we're a lot of times in kind of danger of two errors. The first is either rejecting His wrath or becoming too comfortable with it. We either hate it or we like it too much. And sometimes you may feel, right, I hate it, I can't believe in a God that's a God of wrath. We think wrath is the opposite of love, and that's completely wrong. Wrath is one component of what love is, and love doesn't exist apart from wrath. Because if anger wasn't provoked in me when someone hurt my daughter, you could not say, I love my daughter. If God is love, then loving the world will require that He rages against anything that threatens to destroy it. So far from thinking that we could never believe in a God who's wrathful, it's actually the opposite. A God who did not hate evil and injustice would not be a God worthy of worship. So we're wrong to reject the idea of a God of wrath simply because it's tough to stomach. But on the other hand, we don't understand God if we're comfortable with a God of wrath. Because if we're comfortable with it, that stems from a false belief about humanity. Namely, that there are good people and there are bad people in the world, and I'm in the good people. Because there's three different ways, simplifying a little bit, but there are three different ways to think about humanity. The first one is everybody's basically good. Where you can't go into this tonight, we can talk about it more at another time, but that's nonsense, and that means you've never read the news ever, and you've led an incredibly sheltered life. It means you've basically been sitting in a room eating saltine crackers and looked at white walls until tonight. You're like, oh, what? People are bad? I hadn't noticed because I've been in a room with white walls eating saltine crackers for 20 years. This world's broken. So no, everyone is not good. The other possibility is, well, there are good people and there are bad people. And that's the source of the most violence and suffering perpetrated against each other in the world. It's when we start to believe there's good people and that class should be protected and vindicated and there are bad people and they should be punished and done away with. Because when you divide humanity between good and bad people, then you believe some deserve justice and some don't. And usually you find that people like us don't deserve justice, right? And people unlike us do. So that dynamic, the belief that there are good people and right people and there are bad people, is the source of every ounce of hurt done to someone by someone on both a cultural scale, like the Holocaust, and on a tiny scale, just like snubbing a friend. Right? What Scripture teaches is the third option. Not that everybody's good, not that there are good people and bad people, but it teaches we all like sheep have gone astray. That no one has done good, no, not one. That there are no good people, and the only difference between decent people and monsters is simply circumstances. It's not our nature or constitution is different, but given the right circumstances, we're actually all capable of great evil. But the seed of evil is in all of us. The only difference between an acorn and an oak tree is circumstances. The far more reasonable belief 
that we are all co-conspirators and we are all co-actors in the wickedness of the world is actually the only view that gives humanity hope. Because believing we're all good is nonsense, and believing some people are good and some people are bad actually makes things worse. But believing that we've all rebelled against God, and the manner in which we do it has just looked different according to our circumstances, leaves us looking for the only hope, which is mercy. And that's what Jesus offers. Jesus is willing to drink the cup of God's wrath in our place, not because we are good, but because He is gracious. And you have to notice another detail in this passage. Where does Jesus make the wine? He doesn't make it in wineskins. Right? Verse 6, He made it in Jewish purification jars. That's actually important. Jars that were used to hold water so that people could ceremonially make themselves clean before God. And you see what He's doing? He's completely subverting religion at this point. He's saying, you think religion is about making yourselves clean before God. Jesus makes you clean so that instead you can party with God. Jesus has come to do something that we really can't comprehend. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that we can drink a cup of celebration. Celebration because we're forgiven and celebration because God loves us and celebration because He's full of grace. Celebration because sin and death are defeated. And now you actually know why there's so much wine produced in this first sign. Right? Each jar is 20 to 30 gallons. He produced more wine in His first uh, miracle than any fraternity has ever had at any of their parties at Stanford. That's just objectively true. I don't think they've had 150 gallons of wine at any of their parties. I might be wrong. I didn't check the facts on that. Why is there so much wine? Because the party scales up according to the significance of what's being celebrated. So I'll close with two kind of brief, very brief comments. First to the Christian, we've got to remember the party. Uh, several people in this room go to church at Grace Pres, and there we do communion every week. And the reason we do communion every week is because we're prone to forget the party. And so what we do every week is we eat a pinch of bread and we take a sip of wine. And what those are, those are saved the dates for the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's like, oh yeah, there's going to be wine and there's going to be feasting. We're so mired in simply trying to manipulate God in our mundane circumstances and getting to fit our, fix our small things that we are failing to see how big His promises really are. Like, we want an A on a midterm. And He's like, how about resurrection life? We're like, ah, just, let's worry about the A right now. <laughs> right? Just a heads up, resurrection life is better than A is on midterm. So while kind of the line's open, why don't you ask for resurrection instead of A on the midterm? You know what's happened? If you begin to get that, you'll party better. Because the scale of the party goes up according to the significance of what's being celebrated. To the skeptic, but also kind of all of us, if you're in here and you're like, I don't know if I'm a Christian, I don't know what I think. I'll just say this. Take a few moments this week and be willing to want more than what you're asking out of life. Be willing to want more. Be willing to ask why and what am I really hoping for. In every decision you make, don't be afraid of chasing that decision down in your heart and keep asking why and what am I hoping for, why and what I'm hoping for. And here's my question. Are, your, are your, the things you're hoping for, are they short-term, insecure, and selfish? 
would you be willing to hope bigger than that? Would you be willing to hope for all things new? Are your party plans a distraction, or would you be willing to hope for more? For the possibility of being loved, for the possibility of being forgiven, for the possibility of having full life. In that case, we need to scale up our expectation of what celebration should be. What Jesus offers all of us in this sign is He offers to drink the cup of God's wrath for you so that we can drink the cup of celebration. Let's pray.